Uh, that was a blessing. Thank you for that. John chapter number 8. John chapter number 8. We are continuing in our study through the book of John. And uh, I, I just uh, am thankful for the, the privilege and the opportunity to, to study uh, this great book and this uh, wonderful passage as we look in John 8. And there, there's so much. Uh, there's, there's, there's riches and depths of these riches that I wish that we could uh, plumb the depths, and, and, and I know I am not able to do a fully adequate job, but here is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ once again here in the temple in, in, in this time of, of, of hatred and, and persecution, a time of opposition. He, he comes with compassion. He comes with heart, with burden, proclaiming the gospel, continuing to declare the truth regarding himself, regarding sin, regarding eternity. And it is, it is humbling to consider as we study through the book of John and we see our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so masterfully proclaiming the truth and, and giving the gospel time after time, even in the midst of opposition and intense hatred and, and, and coming persecution. And we looked last week at Jesus' declaration as I am the light of the world. And we looked specifically at aspects of light. But today we're going to see that Christ is from above. Christ is from above. And we'll see, first of all, this morning that he is above in his origin. He is above in his origin. Verse 21 of John chapter 8. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins, whither I go, ye cannot come. Down in verse 23, he says, I am from above. So whither I go, ye cannot come. He mentions it again in verse 22, whither I go, ye cannot come. In verse 23, he mentions, I am from above. So Christ is speaking of heaven. He is going to return back to the glories of heaven. He is going to return to the place of eternity. Christ being the God-man, being eternal. It is a reminder of Christ, not his origin in the sense that he was a created being, uh, an angelic being, or a spirit brother of, of Satan as, as one false Religion teaches. Jesus is simply saying, I return. I'm going to return back to heaven. I'm going to return back to the glories of heaven where he has been from all eternity. As we studied in John chapter 1, in verse number 1, where he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus is eternal as the second person of the Trinity, one God, three persons, one essence. And Christ is saying, I am going to return back to heaven. There's going to be a limited time that I will spend here on this earth. I have come to complete God's plan of redemption. I have come to fulfill God's will and his plan of redemption. But I am going to return back to heaven. And in Acts chapter 1, in verse number 9, we read there, 
And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sights. He would fulfill that promise after the resurrection, crucifixion, resurrection, then he ascends back into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We read that in Philippians 2 as well. So Christ has a limited time here on the earth. He would return to heaven where he had come from, where he had been from all eternity in perfect harmony and fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he is saying that they, these Jews, these who were in opposition to him, these who had not received Christ as their Savior, they would not be able to go there to be with him if they did not trust him as their Savior, if they did not receive him as their Savior. They would not go to heaven. Remember, in their minds, they're on their way to heaven. If anybody is going to heaven, it's these religious leaders in their minds. It's these group of religious Jews who feel like they are good enough, they've done enough, they are uh, keepers of the law. In their mind, if anybody is guaranteed heaven, it is them. And yet Christ is saying, you will not go to heaven. You will die in your sins if you do not receive me. What a comfort this week to be at two funerals and to be able to hear the gospel preached and to know that there is a day coming of resurrection, a reunion in heaven. That though those individuals, we saw them in their bodies, in the caskets, their souls having departed, that they were in the presence of Christ, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And that both individuals had given testimony to having received Christ as their personal Savior, their sins forgiven, and there will be that reunion in heaven. What a joy, as hard as it would be, as hard as it was, as difficult and as emotional as it was to sit there through those funeral services. There was a comfort and a joy and a peace in knowing that we will see them again. Because their sins were forgiven. They had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. That reunion day, that resurrection day is coming. But here's Jesus speaking to these religious leaders. There were some in the crowd who would receive. We'll, we'll, we'll see later in verse 30 that as he spake these words, many believed on him. And we'll have to go into some further explanation, Lord willing, uh, next week about these uh, believers, but the, the point is that though there were some in the crowd who were not necessarily in opposition, who, who would receive him, there was this antagonistic group called the Jews, primarily made up of religious leaders, and Jesus is in his compassion, in his love, in his mercy, he is declaring the truth regarding himself and their need to repent of their sins. Their sin would prevent them from joining him in heaven. They had only a short time. There was only a limited amount of time in which they had left to receive Christ. I think of that hymn, Earnestly, Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. And right now, today, maybe you're sitting here and Jesus is calling. Earnestly, tenderly, calling, calling today. Calling for you to come home. Come home to Christ. Repenting of your sins. Asking for his forgiveness. 
putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Maybe you're here today, and today can be the day of salvation. You do not have to remain in your sins. We see in this passage four ways that guarantee people will die in their sins. In verse 21, we see self-righteousness. They didn't see their need to, to, to repent of their sins. They didn't see themselves as sinners worthy of condemnation. They saw themselves as good enough. They knew the law. They were keepers of the law. They, they were good people. And there's going to be, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of good moral people who will miss the kingdom of heaven, who will go in to eternity, the broad way that leads to destruction, instead of in the narrow way, because they never truly put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They were self-righteous. But we also see in verse 23, another way that people guarantee that they will die in their sins is by temporal mindedness. Temporal mindedness. Verse 23, And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath. This world has so many allurements and distractions and temptations. There are many people who will gain the whole world, but will lose their own soul. Temporal mindedness will cost people eternity because they are looking at their possessions. They're looking at their net worth. They're looking at all the things that this world can offer, and they are caught up in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But the world passeth away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Temporal mindedness will guarantee death in our sins. We also see not only self-righteousness and temporal mindedness, but just sheer unbelief. Verse 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Unbelief. Just willing unbelief, refusing to accept the truths of the gospel, the truth regarding Jesus Christ, the truth regarding our sin and our need for the Savior. Unbelief. I know that can ultimately be considered the cause for all who reject Jesus Christ as their Savior for why they go to an eternity without Christ in hell. That's ultimately the reason for any to be unsaved is unbelief, refusal to believe in Christ. But we see it in, in, a, in a third way here in this passage in verse 24, a simp, simple refusal to believe, to trust Christ as one Savior. And then fourthly, we see a willful ignorance, a willful ignorance. Verses 25 through 29, as Jesus speaks to this crowd, and they ask the question, who art thou? And they understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Verse 27. That is a willful ignorance. That is a clear, that is a rejection of the clear, obvious evidence that has been presented to them. That is a dangerous place when a culture, when an individual, when a society, when a group of people have clear evidence contrary to their thinking, contrary to their belief system, yet will continue in stubborn resistance and ignorance. It's a willful ignorance, a willful stubbornness, unwilling to accept the truths regarding Christ and their sin and their need for the Savior. 
Four ways that people guarantee that they will die in their sins, self-righteousness, temporal mindedness, unbelief, and willful ignorance. So we've seen already that Christ is above in his origin, but we also see today that he is above in his essence, in his essence. Let's go down to verse 22 again. Then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Because he saith, whither I go, ye cannot come. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above, ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Christ is above in his essence. Christ is not of this world. Yes, he came as the incarnate word. He came, he took on human flesh as the God-man. We often reflect upon and We focus often upon the coming of Christ, his first coming at Christmas time, and we talk about the baby and the manger and Bethlehem, the incarnation. And it's important for us, obviously, to to study and to recognize and to dwell on that great truth. But he came, why? To die. To die for the sins of the world. But it's a reminder that he came from the glories of heaven, from perfect fellowship, intimate fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He left all of that to come to a sin-cursed world, to take on human flesh and all of the sinless infirmities of human flesh. He was perfect in every way, sinless. But he got tired. He needed food. He needed drink, water. He, he came and, and he dealt with sinners like you and me. He dealt with disciples who would open up their, their big mouths and say dumb things, who would not believe, who would lack faith, who would be exalted in their own pride, arguing over who was going to sit next to God in the kingdom, who was going to be at the right hand of the Father. At a time when they should have been praying, they're sleeping. At a time when they should have been close to Christ, they're hiding away and dispersing, and Peter himself is denying Christ three times. He came to this sin-cursed world to die for sinners like me, like you. That's an awesome thought. It's a humbling thought. It's a revealing thought. It's a reminder that We are unworthy, wretched sinners. We're going to reflect upon that tonight in communion in the Lord's table. And we're going to have a time of memorial and reflection as we participate in the Lord's table. And it's going to be a wonderful occasion where once again we are reminded of the great sacrifice that Christ made for us. I've said it here many a time, but we we will hardly go to a bad place in town to buy gas, to get a gallon of milk, to get a candy bar or a 59-cent Big Gulp fountain drink. We'll barely go to a bad side of town to do that. But Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven to come and deal with a sin-cursed earth and all of the sins and the faults and the failures and the wickedness and the stubbornness, and the unbelief, and the resistance, and the persecution, and ultimately, his own crucifixion. 
for sinners like you and me. He is from above. He is from above in his essence, and yet he came in the incarnation. We read there in John 1, as we studied several weeks ago in John 1, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now think about this in this context here, in this this passage. This group of religious leaders, the Jews, as this group is identified as by John, They assumed that they were guaranteed heaven because of their religious devotion. Now, notice what they say. Will he kill himself? See, suicide in in, in Jewish thought, in Bible times, suicide was thought to cause the harshest condemnation or damnation. See, in Judaism, life is sacred. And if you want to call it Judeo-Christian thought, Judeo-Christian belief system. Life is sacred. That's why we declare ourselves as pro-life. That's why we're anti-abortion. We're against the murder of pre-born life. Because life is sacred. All men are made in the image of God. They have dignity. Life begins at conception. We're also opposed to euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Because life is sacred. So for them, they're in the law, in the tradition, and in the law, suicide had a particularly harsh condemnation. For those who committed suicide, it was thought that they would receive a particular damnation or condemnation. Even if they claimed to be a believer, even if they had fulfilled all the law, had in their system done enough to earn heaven, they would lose the ability to enter heaven, even based upon their own moral system, if someone committed suicide. It would cost them their eternity. For some, in the Jewish thought, suicide was that condemning, that damning. And in that day, as for some even today, suicide is is thought to be the unpardonable sin. I know growing up, I met people... I don't hear it too much, that, that much anymore, but growing up, I, I heard uh, many people refer to suicide as the unpardonable sin. But when we look at Scripture, the unpardonable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirits, Matthew 12 and verse 31. So in other words, the unpardonable sin is one's final rejection of Jesus Christ, the rejection of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that leads one to faith in Christ. That final rejection of Christ is the unpardonable sin, not suicide. So their question in verse 22 is likely referring to a condemnation that they felt like they would have no part of. And how could Christ call himself a righteous man and consider suicide? This was a particularly heinous sin that could cost eternity. And if Christ is saying that he's going to commit suicide, which is not what he's saying, they're twisting his words, they're coming up with ridiculous uh, responses, as we so often see in the world today. There's a a loss of of fact and a lack of true argument. There's no basis for truth in much of the unsaved uh, thinking and arguments 
and attacks upon Christianity. There's, there's many times no basis in fact or reality or in truth, and they just hurl out these ridiculous responses and answers to, to, to try to uh, make the Christian look foolish, to make the believer look foolish. And really, that's what they're doing here. But, but they're, they're, they're accusing Christ of, of wanting to commit suicide, which is a condemning, damning sin. And how could he claim to be a righteous man if he was considering suicide? So that is part of what is in the thinking here, in the context and what's going on. But I, I want us to, to dwell for a few moments on the, the fact that Christ is above in his essence, that Christ is from above, which speaks to those who trust Christ as their Savior, those of us who are born again, who are in Christ, united with Christ by faith, baptized in Christ by the Holy Spirit, as believers in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. We are not of this world any longer. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We are pilgrims on a journey. Our citizenship is in heaven, we're reminded in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. For a person to truly get saved, one must believe in Christ as one's personal Savior. So if Christ is from above, this is not just adding Jesus to my life as a like a diet plan or an exercise program or some sort of self-help or self-improvement program. Jesus is not just a good person who inspires me to, to, to live a better life. Jesus is from above, so when I get saved, when a person trusts Christ as their Savior, they are born again. They are granted an entrance into God's kingdom. Now, physically, we will enter into God's kingdom at the resurrection day. And we've already talked a little bit about absent from the body, present with the Lord, our soul upon death. We, we, we enter into the presence of, of Christ upon our, our physical death. And then the soul and the, the body are, are united at the resurrection, Christ's second coming, the rapture. And we, we don't want to, I don't want to get into all the eschatology and all that. But the, the point is that when we get saved, we are born again. And we enter into a, citizen, a citizenship that is in heaven. That means that our life is completely changed. We are new. We are a new creation. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus. That means we no longer live for this world. We talked last week about, the, about Christ being the light of the world. And how plants orient themselves to the lights. If you put a plant in a room you'll notice that the plants turn even to face the lights if they're in the shadows. And we as Christians so often, even though we claim to, to be in Christ, we claim Christ as our Savior, too often we're oriented to the darkness instead of oriented to the light. In understanding that Christ is above in His essence, it is a reminder to us as believers that our citizenship is in heaven in that we are to seek those things which are above. We're to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that Christ must be preeminent, and that our thinking, our focus, our view, our orientation is not to this life. What's the world say? 
He who dies with the most toys wins. Get it all. Get as much as you can. Have it all. The pleasures and the pomp and the pride. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Live it up. That's what the world says. But our citizenship is not of this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have a higher calling. And this truth sets the principle for personal and ecclesiastical separation. This fact that Christ is from above and we are in Christ, it even sets the principle for living a life of personal separation and for the church to practice ecclesiastical separation. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. We see this very clearly. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning at verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate saith the Lord and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters saith the Lord Almighty for an unsaved person to enter into heaven without having trusted Christ as one savior and having been forgiven of their sins and justified and received propitiation and sanctified For an unsaved person to enter into heaven on their own good works would be to contradict the very passage of Scripture we just read from 2 Corinthians 6. It would be to spoil heaven with sin. I don't know about you, but when I get to heaven, I don't want anything more to do with sin. I'm tired of sin. I hate it. It afflicts me. I I feel like Paul in Romans 7 all the time. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I should do, I don't do them like I should. I don't want heaven to be spoiled with sin. I look forward to that day when this sin-cursed body is done away. And I have a new body in Christ. And we can have perfect fellowship with one another without sin. What a glorious day that will be. For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, that resurrection day, that reunion day is going to be glorious. We're going to be side by side with people that we may have even struggled to get along with here on this earth, but no more will sin be there. That will all be gone. But most importantly, that effect of sin, that presence of sin will be gone, and we'll be able to worship our Savior unhindered by sin, by ourself, and by our self-righteousness. Christ is from above in his essence. It speaks to our citizenship in heaven. It speaks to our sinfulness and our need for personal and for ecclesiastical separation. James chapter 4 and verse number 4, James also repeats this. He is very strong in what he says in chapter 4 of his letter. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. He doesn't mince words, does he? He doesn't use euphemisms for sin. He comes right out and he calls it what it is. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. 
Strong words. What does Jesus say to these people in John chapter 8? He says, ye are from beneath. I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. Strong words. Christ is appealing to them to be saved. He goes on and repeats it. For if ye believe not... Not if you work a little harder, if you just do a few more good deeds, if you just keep on, keep on, if you just keep, keep working hard at it, eventually the, the, the scales will tip in your favor. You'll have enough points, enough tickets, so that you can turn them into Peter at the pearly gates and, and you'll make it. No, that's not what he says. He says, if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Literally. Literally, if ye believe not that I am, you'll notice there that he is an italicized print added there by the translators for clarification. He's literally saying, for if ye believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. That is, again, a statement to Christ's deity. He is saying, if you do not recognize me as the Messiah... If you do not recognize me as God in the flesh, if you do not recognize me as the sacrifice for your sins, paying the penalty for your sins, you will die in your sins. You will die in a sinful condition of condemnation that results in your eternal damnation. These are some strong words. But Christ is saying, I am from above. And you cannot come with me to heaven if you continue in your faithlessness, in your unbelief, in your sin. But Christ continues. He says he is from above in his origin. We see he is above in his essence. But thirdly, we see that Christ is above in his judgment. He is above in his judgment. Now let's go down to verse 25. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? Now here again, we have the religious leaders, we have this crowd, we have a group of people antagonistic toward Christ, seeking to literally find a, a time and a place to murder him. They've already had some attempts. We even go back to verse 20 at the end of the passage that we looked at last week. No man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. And Christ is now once again questioned by this group. Who art thou? He has given insurmountable evidence of who he is. From his life, from his works, his miracles, to his words with authority and preaching, the witnesses that he has declared, the declarations of his deity, yet they ask the question, who art thou? Again, isn't this just like an unsaved antagonistic crowd? They, they, they just want to come back with ridiculous arguments. They want to come back with something to distract or to detour from the main points. If you've ever been in a witnessing opportunity, ever been in an evangelistic opportunity and you're sharing the gospel and maybe you've been uh, in a conversation with someone and every time you get to a point where you declare the need for Christ as their Savior or you make a point about sin and, and then they want to come back with another argument to try to detour, to try to d distract, to try to get away from the main point. I remember witnessing to a, a man, he was involved in uh, the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses 
And every time we would have a conversation, he was, we were working together, uh, we were doing laundry in the, the laundry room at the place where we worked, and so we would have time to talk, and we would get into a conversation, and I would share the gospel with him, and every time I would make a point about sin and about trusting Christ as a Savior, he always wanted to come back with another argument. What about this in your Bible? What about this in your Bible? He was always trying to distract from the main point. That's what they're doing here. Who art thou? They had more than sufficient evidence that he is the Messiah. There was absolutely no doubt that he is God in the flesh, but still they continued to question his identity. Some would only see him as the carpenter's son. Joseph, the carpenter's son, you know, the son of Joseph, the carpenter from Nazareth of Galilee. They, they wouldn't get beyond that point. They could not see him any other way because of their willing unbelief. Some even had the blasphemous idea that Jesus was an illegitimate child. That even continued into the 21st century uh, in, in, in a book uh, by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. That lie has continued for centuries. But Christ pointed to his consistent statements regarding himself. He spoke of his authority to judge them, and he claimed divinity. And they could not, they could not disclaim They could not, though they willfully doubted, though they willfully in their stubbornness refused to accept and believe, they could not explain his miracles and his authority and his sinless life. It was real, consistent evidence before their very eyes of who he is. He goes on to say in verse 25, even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. He says, I have declared these things to you already. I have many things to say and to judge of you. But he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. What does Jesus do? He once again brings them back to his equality with God the Father. He brings them back to these eternal truths. He brings them back with a claim of divinity that they had to recognize, but they willfully refused to accept. And what was he saying? He's saying, my judgment, my judgment is true. I have the authority to judge you because my judgment is according to God's divine standard of holiness. He is the rightful judge. Look at what Christ is saying here. He is saying, I am equal in my judgment to God the Father. He is saying, I am the judge of your eternal souls. Those are strong words. This is another evidence of Christ's deity. Again, I come back to the argument, I think it was C.S. Lewis. Christ is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is the Savior. He keeps bringing them back to this point of decision. He puts his identity on the line, his life, his works, and his words. He puts them all on the line by claiming to have received and revealed absolute truth from the Father. Look at verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak 
these things. His very words, he claims, are the very words of God himself. So what, what does this, how can we apply this in our personal lives? One, in our witness, in our answer to an unsaved world, we keep coming back to the truth. We keep coming back to the authority of the word of God. Compromise and capitulation is not going to be the answer. Cancel culture, as we talked about in the Sunday School Hour, cancel culture and woke culture, there's no forgiveness. There's no mercy. You accept all and you celebrate it or you get thrown out. Christ boldly continued to bring them back to the truth regarding himself. And we'll see this theme over and over and over. This is in God's mercy. It's in his compassion. And it's a reminder to us of the boldness that we must have. But it's also a reminder to us of how we must live. We must live according to the truth of the word of God. We must live a life consistent with these truths. That Christ is from above. That he is not of this world. He is above in his origin, in his essence, and that he is above in his judgment. He has the right to bring judgment onto our life. I know that's not, I know that's not a positive thinking philosophy that is so prevalent. Again, I talk about going down to Barnes & Noble. You can go down to Barnes & Noble and you can find a whole section of self-help books that will make you feel really good about yourself. I just heard of another popular politician's wife who wrote a memoir. And I heard an excerpt of the memoir that she wrote. And it was just feel good about feeling good, about following the light of your life, and you'll just have happiness and you'll bring fulfillment to your life. And you just, I was listening to it as I was driving down the road and I just wanted to puke right there in the car. All this mushy, feeling good about yourself all the time, affirming everything that you ever think or feel. Is that what Jesus says? Oh, you religious leaders, you're just really good guys. You just, you have really sincere motives you, 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 you've really lived a pretty moral life and, and you're doing a really good job with these people. I mean, you could be you know, living some rebellious life towards the Romans, but you know, you're, you're, you're doing all right. He could have patted him on the back and said, come on, keep working hard, do a good job. But he didn't do that, did he? He said, except you believe that I am. You'll die in your sins. He said it again. And then he said, you must measure your life by God's standard. I am the standard because I am God. And I have the right to judge you. And that's how we must live. We must live in that fear of God. Every day. We must live in the light of God's righteous judgments. It's a reverential fear. It's a fear that's enveloped with love. Because as born-again believers, we are his children, but we live in a fear of God in, in reverence of judgment, and we declare in the gospel a judgment according to God's standard of holiness. And the only way to escape that eternal judgment is by trusting in Christ as one's Savior, repenting of one's sin and putting one's faith and trust in Christ and his finished work. 
Verse 28, he refers to his crucifixion. He says, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, he makes reference to his crucifixion. Remember Matthew 12, Matthew 16, the cross is the sign that Jesus points the Jews to. That's the sign. The sign of the crucifixion. That's the sign. Remember the Jews look for a sign? In Matthew 12, in Matthew 16, Jesus points to the cross. That is the sign. He makes reference to the sign of Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, symbolizing the three days and three nights that Christ was in the grave and then rose again. He's speaking again to that sign of the crucifixion. They must trust him in his finished work on the cross. And then in verse 29, he once again mentions his commitment to the Father's will. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. His crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension would once again demonstrate and declare his deity and ultimate victory over death and sin. And we could go to 1 Corinthians 15 and Philippians 2, but we don't have time to do that today, where we see once again the fulfillment of God's redemption plan in Jesus Christ who was a servant and was obedient even to the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Reminder at the judgment. We'll either bow to him as our Savior, Lord and Savior, or we'll If a person is at the judgment having never received Christ as their Savior, they'll bow that day, but they won't bow to Him as their Savior. He'll be Lord, but He won't be Savior. It's a recognition, once again, of the judgment that is coming. So we've seen today that Christ is above in His origin. He is above in His essence, and He is above in His judgment. In verse 30, as we come to a close, He says, And he spake these words, and as he spake these words, many believed on him. Interesting conclusion to this paragraph. We'll have to come back, Lord willing, next week. And I encourage you to be here again next week as we look at this pattern of true discipleship. The marks of true discipleship. And we'll look at these who made a profession of faith that day. And Christ will speak to what true discipleship looks like. What a true believer looks like. But we've seen again, Christ is above. He is above in his origin. He's above in his essence. He is above in his judgment. May we walk in the light of those truths this week and this day. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word.